Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Bob Thune from Columbia Church, and uh, I am alone on this episode. Uh, Pastor Chris and Pastor Dusty are both on vacation. Bethany is here with headphones only, working some audio magic. And uh, we have the privilege today of having a special guest on this podcast that we've been trying to get on this uh, recording for a long time. Uh, that guest is Dr. James Eglinton of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, James is the senior lecturer, the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, he has undergrad degrees from Aberdeen and Glasgow and a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. He's also the associate editor of the Journal of Reformed Theology. And most importantly, uh, James is the author of the biography of Herman Bovink, which came out a few years ago, and also a major translator of many of Bovink's works. And so since on this podcast, especially on Third Wednesday Theology episodes over the past couple of years, we've been reading through and talking through the wonderful works of God by Herman Bovink. We thought as a fitting uh, summary of that work, we would uh, talk with James and just hear more about Bovink's life and about James's own work as a translator, as a student, as a scholar of Herman Bovink and of Neo-Calvinism. And so it's a great joy today to welcome special guest James Eglinton. Well, it's a privilege to have with us today James Eglinton, uh, all the way from Scotland. So James, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'd love to know, first of all, uh, well, you know, on the podcast, we've read, uh, we've spent a couple of years reading uh, Bovink's Wonderful Works of God, which I found out after I started reading it, that that's actually been in English for a long time. Um, but mm-hmm. then that got me connected to your biography that you had written of Bovink. And so it's uh, fun to be able to talk with you a little bit about both your work and sort of your interest in Herman Bovink and in Dutch Reformed theology and Neo-Calvinism and all that. So as we get into that, I'd just love for you to tell us, James, about your own background. Where did you grow up and how did you sort of get to where you are? Yeah, so I am from Scotland, uh, so I'm not Dutch. Um, I live in Edinburgh. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh. I don't know if, if this mic can pick up in the background that there's a lot of music outside, but where I work is in the School of Divinity, and it's this amazing 19th century building. It's literally next door to Edinburgh Castle, and at the moment, the Lumineers are playing right outside my office. Um, I don't know who they are, but they're they're apparently a big deal. Oh, Bethany knows they're from who America. they are. Yeah, they're... Yeah, so, yeah, so they're a big deal. So they're playing right outside my window right now. So I, I, I work between, you know, reading all these old Dutch books and having, you know, Tom Jones or the Lumineers or people like that playing outside. And just down the road, again, about, you know, two minutes away on foot, um, it was just the Scottish coronation of King Charles as well. So it's a busy day in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> so it's quite a context to do theology in. Um, so I teach, as I said, at the university. Um, I come from a place called Inverness, which is a small city in the north of Scotland. It's uh, I grew up next to Loch Ness, where, the, where Nessie the Loch Ness Monster is apparently from. Um, so uh, that's our main international claim. That's to what fame all our listeners will know. Yes, it's Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a Christian family and um, I... Um, yeah, so I, I joined the church uh, as a member by profession of faith when I was 17. Um, I became a member in a Presbyterian church, a denomination called the Free Church of Scotland. So it's a, it's a theologically um, orthodox, uh, quite small Presbyterian denomination. Um, so that was in my last year of high school. And after that, I went to university to study law. So in Scotland, you don't do pre-law or pre-med. You just go, you go straight into it at the age of 18, as ready as you are then. So I studied, um, I did a law degree, but um, in Scotland, you can make up quite a lot of your credits in your major as an undergrad in something else. So as part of that law degree, I did a year of theology. 
uh, in the Divinity School there in Aberdeen, where I was doing my law degree. And um, I just, I absolutely loved it. And I really got the bug for theology at that point when I was um, this undergrad law student. So when I finished my law degree, I, I still had so much appetite for theology. And I was really thinking a lot about ministry and what my life would look like after, uh, after I finished my degree. I never wanted to work as a lawyer at all. Um, so I went from law school to seminary, and I went to seminary in Edinburgh um, to my own denomination's seminary, which at that point was called the Free Church College. It's now Edinburgh Theological Seminary. So I had three really happy years there um, in seminary, and, uh, and that's where I first came across Herman Bavink. So I was at seminary there just around the time that his dogmatics were coming out in English. Um, so I, I got the, the Bavink bug at that point. And, um, after I finished at seminary, I became an assistant pastor. So I did that for three years um, part-time um, at a church right in the heart of Edinburgh, also just next to Edinburgh Castle. And I did that part-time while I did a PhD full-time at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so that was on Herman Bavink. So I've been working on him. I finished my PhD in 2010 um, and his work has been just a huge feature of my life ever since. I've gone on to write a few books about him and trans translated a few of his books and lived in the Netherlands for three years um, to do research on him over there and to improve my Dutch a lot. Um, so yeah, that's the the very short um, summary of, of my life thus far. I'm married, I've got four kids as well. Uh, my wife Ailey is a medical doctor and our kids are, we have eight-year-old twins, a 10-year-old, and a 12-year-old. Okay, so explain a little bit about what, what was it about Bavink when you first read him in seminary that sort of that got you so interested, you said, I want to just sort of give my life to this, to, to helping this person's works become better known. Yeah. Um, you know, the very first thing is kind of embarrassing, actually, to look back on, but um, I'd been reading his reformed dogmatics, and I was just amazed at um, how one person could have read so much and could have such a huge overview of of all these different you know parts within theology and, and all the different doctrines, but also have so much detail in every part. It was kind of like you know if you ever go to an art gallery for the first time and you see you know a truly massive painting, like absolutely grand scale, and then you know when you stand back from it, it looks so impressive as one huge piece of art, and then when you get up close you see the fine detail in everything. And it's just amazing that someone can think in, on on that kind of wide scale, but also be able to zoom in and, and all the fine detail is there too. So it was kind of like that experience for me with reading his dogmatics. But alongside that in our library, I also picked up a book called An Introduction to the Science of Missions, which was a missiology textbook also by Abavink. And I started reading that and I was really blown away again as a seminarian by how the, the same guy who wrote this um, amazing work in dogmatics could also write this work in missiology. And so I found out that it was actually like two different figures, an uncle and a nephew, Herman Bavink and J.H. Bavink. So I came across them both at the same time, but I really got sucked into Herman Bavink. Um, yeah, I think there were a few features of his theology that, that really captivated me from the beginning. Um, one of them was that um, he was just so clear. You know, it's kind of like if you come across, um, you know, if you're used to seeing all kinds of different murky water and all of a sudden you come across like truly crystal a crystal clear lake and uh, you know you can see through a, like you can see everything that's on the surface and it was kind of like that in terms of how he would how how he wrote with such amazing precision and clarity and that's something that I really aspired to. So I didn't do a PhD on him with the goal of becoming an academic theologian. I actually wanted to, at that point, I thought that becoming a pastor was the most likely thing that I was going to go on to do. But I was still really young. I was, um, I was, oh, like 25 when I finished at seminary. And I, and I felt very, very young. 
And I thought that three years of studying the works of a great theologian in a PhD program would hopefully help me become a clearer thinker and clearer at expressing my thoughts and a better preacher. And uh, so I did the PhD for that reason, but um, the, the clarity of his thought, um, just how precisely and clearly he could articulate the Christian faith really drew me in. Um, but I guess I had a lot of questions about about him because you know I grew up in a Scottish Reformed tradition, and um, the Dutch Reformed tradition is uh, is is quite similar. Like it's similar enough that you can intuitively feel your way around and you don't feel lost. But it's different enough that you know you're not quite where you came from. Maybe it's a bit like you know if you meet some of your cousins for the first time and you can tell right away, oh yeah, we're from the same family, but not from the same you know immediate set of parents. Um, so I wanted to, I guess, take the chance to immerse myself in a theological tradition that I thought, um, you know, my own my own background was a really good on ramp into it, but and also gave me, um, you know, enough of an affinity for what was going on there that um, you know I could make quite good progress quickly in understanding it, but also something that was different enough that it would maybe be a different vantage point to look in on the tradition that I was ministering in, in and that I came from and that I, I thought it would serve in long term. So um, I had a lot of questions around why there was like, why wasn't Bavinck Scottish or why didn't we produce our own Herman Bavinck in the late 19th century? Like, what, 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 because I was very aware of some things that were just a bit lacking in my own Scottish Reformed tradition. And, and Bavinck seemed to, to meet all of those needs at that point um, in lots of different emphases, like his doctrine of common grace, um, which we don't really have a, a, an indigenous, like Scottish articulation of. So to get a doctrine like common grace, you know, which is the, it's just an extension of what what Jesus says that that God gives good gifts to all people, that He makes the the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous, and um, and and rain to pour on both as well. Um, but in in the Scottish you know history of of Reformed Christianity, we don't really have a very well developed explanation of what that actually means for how you live in the world, for example. So that that was the initial hook actually that, that brought me in wondering, like, why didn't we develop our, our own distinctive Scottish theology of common grace in the same way that the Dutch Calvinists did, the Dutch Reform did? And um, then when I started to get into what that looked like for Bavinck, I discovered whoa, the same guy who wrote Reform Dogmatics also like he was the editor of a national newspaper and he was the leader of a political party and he was a member of Parliament for a decade and he wrote um, biographies, uh, he wrote literary you know criticism, he um, he I mean he he did everything. He was this like, Renaissance man. And um, so when you start to see what having this doctrine actually looks like in a whole life, and for me, that was just completely fascinating. And there's so much there to try and get into that. Uh, I mean, I finished that when I finished my PhD when I was 28 and I'm 40 now, still reading him all the time, still uncovering new things. Um, there's just there's a lot there, you know. Well, you're describing, uh, you know, what we've loved about reading Bavink. I got introduced to him a couple years ago through my podcast partner, Chris, and I'd never read any Bavink. And so we started with the wonderful works of God and that the idea of the clear water that you're talking about is what I'd appreciated too. Just, it seems very accessible though. It is clearly very erudite and he's a deep mm. thinker. T talk a little bit about, was there something about to, to go back to your question of what was different about Dutch reformed versus Scottish reformed or the reformed tradition, even in the U S was there something about the Dutch context that made Bavink that way? Or was he just a unique sort of mind and, and individual? I think that there's something that's quite specific about the Dutch context that that we can't really understand him without. And um, that is that, so he was born in 1854. And um, you know, when we think of the Netherlands today, we 
you know, at least the stereotype of it in the UK and it's probably similar in the US is that, you know, it's it's the most, um, you know, liberal country in the world. That's and, where you go to smoke you know, pot and goes legally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the British stereotype yeah. here. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a very liberal form of liberal democracy. Um, but I think a lot of people here tend to just forget the fact that democracy in, in the modern form developed at one particular point. And uh, there was a time when that was brand new. And the idea of a society where, um, where you have complete freedom of religion, for example, that, that's a pretty recent invention in Western European history. So he was born in 1854, but the Netherlands had only become a, a liberal country um, in uh, 1848. So just six years before he was born. And before that, um, so his family came from a denomination that had left the state reformed church uh, before this in, in 1834. Okay, So they were unhappy with the, like, the kind of state control and, and really the king's own control of their denomination. So in context, you're talking about stuff like a government office that um, that pays the minister salaries, but also that 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 has a huge influence on what you're going to sing in church on Sunday. So the state's own vision for how things will be um, then is you know what you have to pick up and sing when you're sitting in the pew on a Sunday. So all of a sudden you find you know a lot of really kind of rationalistic, anti-supernatural, um, very nationalistic, very if you wanted to get into the philosophy, very Kantian. Um, which is part of the whole moralistic anti-supernatural. Like you get a lot of hymns that are very much reflective of that. And um, so there's the, there was a breakaway group basically that left that church in 1834. And that's the church that Bavink's father was a pastor in. But at that point, it was before the Netherlands had become a liberalized country. So it was actually illegal to leave the state reformed church and to try and start another church. So if you choose to join that denomination at that point, it's a huge, it's a really crippling life that you're choosing in terms of society and what you you know, you know or your kids might become in society um, because of the, the financial penalties that come with being part of this church. But also, um, you know, it, it shuts you out of mainstream education. And um, so you really choose to become a bit of an underclass, I guess, if you join this church. Um, and that's what the Bavink family had done. But then six years before he was born, there was this, you know, 1848 was the summer of revolutions across Europe. And it's when monarch, well, monarchs lose their absolute power. A lot of countries become constitutional democracies, all that kind of stuff. And um, with that, you also get all of a sudden overnight the full freedom of religion, that you're not going to be persecuted by the state um, now for your religious beliefs. So that's a brand new thing. And he's born into that into that context. And his own family were really socially ambitious, actually, for their kids. So they they were trying to work out okay if you're not if we're not persecuted now for our faith um then what will that mean for what our kids could become you know how high can they rise in society um so they raised their kids to be very curious um about the the world in which they lived and to be really ambitious with quite a kind of pious sense of ambition that for the glory of god that they should the christian faith is rich enough and broad enough to carry them wherever they want to go in life and that, and that there aren't you know no-go areas like journalism or politics or uh, or science or art or, or you know anything like that or the university so they really channeled their their children to be to be quite ambitious actually and and what they saw as quite a, a godly form of ambition as a family so the family aspect and that that kind of um part of the background there is a big part of why there, you know, there was a Herman Bavink because there was a Bavink family. You know, there was a particular family that, that, that really pushed him forward into society. 
Um, but I think another, so, so, yeah, so he's part of a society at that point that's brand new actually, and everyone's trying to work out, you know, what are the rules of engagement? What kind of space do we exist within? And, um, you know, society was changing a lot in terms of de-Christianization and, um, people are just trying to work out what, what, what some kind of life looks like in quite a small country together. And then that gives this, you know, polymathic genius Herman Bavinck, um, a kind of context where he, you know, he becomes the figure that he does, where he's doing all these different things with his life and to, to a pretty amazingly high degree. Um, but there's one, I think, really big difference between the the Dutch Reformed tradition and the Scottish Reformed tradition um, that's there in the background that's a really important one for, I guess, for why he was so attractive to me. And that is that the in the Dutch Reformed tradition, um, so having the role that um, that reformed confessional standards, so in, in Bavinck's context, something like the Heidelberg Catechism, as this document, um, you know, begins with this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then it takes you um, through the way that we understand um, ourselves as guilty before God because of our sin, but then how God shows us grace in Christ. And then it guides us through how to live in gratitude on the basis of what God has done for us. Um, th this was something that was just, you know, in like, in the basic diet of what it meant to grow up as a Christian in Bavinck's Dutch Reform context. And that's still the same for a lot of Dutch Reform people today. Um, and the way this works out is that the Heidelberg Catechism, which is very, um, you know, it's, it's very warm in terms of content. It's really pastorally focused. Um, it's always anticipating that the, the, the next question that's going to come up is the one that's already there unconsciously in your mind because of what it's just told you in the previous question and answer. Um, so that catechism is divided up into 52 sections. And they're 52 weeks in the year. So in the morning, if you're the young Herman Bavink, you go to church and you hear a sermon that's an exposition of scripture. And then on Sunday afternoon, you go back to church and it's that it's a sermon on that Sunday section of the catechism. And this is just the norm for everyone in that world. So going to church, you learn um, you learn a kind of systematic theology, actually. So there's just this clarity there of structure that you're taught in a very explicit way. Um, and Part of the beauty, I guess, of the Heidelberg Catechism is that, as I was saying, it's very pastoral, very, um, very much focused on what it's like to to lean into the gospel in your daily life, um, in the struggles of this life, and so on. And um, but it's also like, beneath the surface of the Catechism, it's a it's a really profound introduction into the history of Christian thought and Christian theology, and then specifically in the Reformed tradition. So Bavinck grows up in this this world where people all have a so there's just a quite a rich systematic theology that's there in the life of the church and um, in Scotland I, I don't think so we have a different set of reformed confessions we have the the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter Catechism but um, it's never really been embedded in the worshiping life of the church or in the faith formation of Sunday to Sunday in church. Um, in a way that the Heidelberg Catechism was in Bavinck's context. So um, I guess, you know, growing up, I, I had a lot of questions about, um, you know, how things like our our church's catechism and confessional, you know, documents and, and those standards of, of belief um, really relate to just everyday faith. Um, are they there just as some kind of abstract thing in the background and, you know, pastors confirm that they agree with the confession and uh, standards when they're ordained, but beyond that, we don't think about it, or what could it mean for us? So I was really drawn to, to um, the way that, that for Bavinck, this confessional tradition is a, is a really rich um, source of ongoing 
uh, you know, basis for growth in the Christian life. Um, so that, that, that aspect of how to be um, reformed in line with or drawing on you know this rich confessional tradition that's really you know Catholic with a small C in spirit as well. Um, that for me again was another on-ramp into being really fascinated by him as an example of a particular tradition. Um, so something that, that I argued once in, so my first book was on um, his understanding of the Trinity and the world in the light of its triune creator. And something that I tried to argue in that book is that if you look at Bavinck's reform dogmatics, uh, so this is you know his big four volume um, uh, magnum opus, the first first of the four volumes is um, it's really just you know going through all of the 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 kind of preparation that you need to do in order to work out what we're doing when we're doing theology. So how can we know what we know? Um, which kind of questions does theology ask? Um, that kind of stuff. But then after that, the volumes two, three, and four, I argued in this book, are actually set up as a huge exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Mm. Um, because volume two is about God and creation. Volume three is about um, is about um, sin and salvation in Christ. And volume four is about the Holy Spirit, the church, and the and recreation. And um, it's really just the structure of the Apostles' Creed that's the, that's the structure of the whole thing. And um, so when you start to think about Bavinck in that way and you think of the grand scale of his work, and then you realize that really what he devoted his life to was applying his gifts and his learning to you know, putting into print um, the kind of exposition of the Apostles' Creed that he'd heard his whole life because he went to church on Sunday nights and heard the Apostles' Creed explained Sunday by Sunday in the in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, that again just kind of blew my mind that, that it could look like this in um, in church and that's that the, the, what you do on a Sunday evening in church and then what a theologian does when he's in his office writing every day over years, um, that that's actually really harmonious, you know, that there's an organic picture of how that all connects. I mean, that I just thought that was so beautiful and such a, an amazing way to use your life. Um, so again, drawn to him for those kinds of reasons as well. Well, you mentioned common grace a few minutes ago. What would you say are a few of the distinctives of Boving's approach that particularly are resonant for what we need in, in today's context? Yeah, so I guess I already introduced the idea. So it's it's the so there's a distinction between special grace and common grace. So common grace is given by God. It's the kindness of God shown to all people, um, whether they are believers or not, whether they're repentant, whether they um, embrace the gospel. Um, and for Bavink, this is his way of helping us um, understand that that all human beings inhabit the same world and it is God's world. And actually we all, we're all recipients of the same general revelation of God. So I mentioned the distinction between special grace, which is saving grace in Christ and common grace, which is common to all people. Um, and in the way that Bavink thinks about this, common grace and special grace are a bit like the difference between general revelation. So there we're talking in scripture about um, Psalm 19, you know, the heavens declare um, the glory of God, the skies preach his handiworks, and, and all humans who inhabit this world receive that general revelation of God all the time. You know, it's what you see every time you see, you know, the green in every blade of grass and, um, you know, every um, everything that you see around you in the natural world is, uh, you know, every star in the sky is a general revelation of its creator. Um, and we have some categories in Romans 1 for how those things generally reveal that there is a God to us. 
But there's also a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. So general revelation will tell you certain things about how there is a God, um, about his, uh, his eternity, his divine nature, but it doesn't tell you that this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for example. So for that, we, God gives us special revelation um, that, that is, um, that's distinct again. So general and common or common grace and, and, and special grace are, are kind of like one side of the coin for Bavink and the other side you have general revelation and special revelation. So Bavink's very helpful at linking those two things up and showing you that actually um, the, the thing behind all of this is that, that this God has created us and our world and that the world that we inhabit is his and he created us as his image. Um, but you know, we have fallen into sin, but it is by the common grace of God, for example, that, um, that God has a restraining hand on even the effects of evil that we would, uh, if, if it were left purely up to us, we would become much worse versions of ourselves than we actually are. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of restraining feature in common grace in, in Bavink um, that, um, that I think is really important and, and helpful in thinking through the fact that we live within God's world um, and God sets these conditions and, and God actually shows kindness to us and that the world isn't much worse than it is. So there's, there's a kind of prevention of things, of the effect of sin and collapsing the world in on itself. And then for this reason, I guess, for Bavink, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of way to inhabit the world gratefully um, and seeing the world both as a general revelation of God and as a general recipient of the grace of God, even in its fallenness, um, that, that God loves this world in that kind of way. So for Bavink, there's a, there is a distinct kind of um, like, life of gratitude that you that you develop or a posture of gratitude to God for all of the grace around you, even in a general sense. Um, as you, um, you know, you look at the green in every blade of grass differently um, when you start to see it in that sense, both in terms of general revelation and common grace. Um, but for Bavink, you know, there's also, um, you, you really, like special grace um, makes a big difference with how you feel grateful for common grace, mm. um, in the same way that um, that special revelation. So reading the Bible helps you look at general revelation differently. Um, you know, so it puts a it puts a name or it gives you names of the persons of the the Godhead who made this world. So when you so I mean for Calvin, for example, you go a bit further back in the Reformed tradition, um, he'll talk about general or special revelation, the Bible, as being like a pair of of glasses that you put on, and then when you look through them, you see things differently, and you see general revelation, the world that you live in differently. Um, so special grace, you know, when the gospel is actually at work um, in your life, changing you. I think it makes you, it gives you particular, like quite deep resources for gratitude, actually, in the ordinariness of life, that, that this is a gift of God as well, um, all these common grace things. So I think that there's a, there's, there's a danger of taking an idea like common grace and, and really cheapening it um, by making common grace like this very easy catch-all idea for, you know, why it's okay to listen to, you know, non-christian bands or like go to the the movies and watch a film made by um you know like a, a non-believing director and non-believing actors or something like that and, and where it's just this um it's your kind of get out of jail card for you know what, what are you doing in the world here um and the world in that kind of unregenerate sense but actually i think i think has um 
has really good resources for helping us think through like what, what would it mean if common grace were really costly rather than cheap um, and then live gratefully um, in the world on that basis i'm i'm curious about uh just departing from bobbing for a minute and just going into your world you obviously are cranking out a lot of translations related to I guess mainly I see you doing a lot of bobbing stuff. I don't know if that's sort of where you're focused or if you're doing broader things in that, but I would love you just to take us into your workshop and talk through a basic project. I saw on your faculty page that you speak, read, and write English, Gallic, Dutch, and French. So that's four languages. That's, yeah. that's four times as many languages as I speak and write. But I'd love to know how, do, how does a, you know, when you're, you're taking a, um, an original Dutch work and doing a translation, how's that project work? What's it look like? What's the flow look like? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a really slow work and it's a, it's a labor of love. Um, I mean I'm just a nerd, you know. I mean I'm like I, I own it, you know. I'm not even embarrassed by that anymore. Uh, um, I so I love um, finding old books that are forgotten. Um, you know, these books matter to people when they were written. Um, otherwise, people wouldn't have written them. I would hope. You know, that we're not wasting our lives cranking out pointless books, books that we think are pointless anyway. Um, and when you find a book that has been forgotten and you don't think it should have been, you know, books get forgotten for all kinds of reasons across history. Um, you know, books are, are fragile things and so are libraries. You know, they can be easily destroyed, you know, they, they decay. Um, but also they're subject to all kinds of, um, you know, political, economic constraints that are, are, you know, just far bigger than an individual book a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, like before and after world wars. Um, tons of books get forgotten, forgotten on either side of, of a major conflict, um, just because you know life is kind of decimated and um, for a lot of people. And when they start to try and pick the pieces up after a world war, for example, um, they you know, they quite often are, it just doesn't occur to people to go back to what we were reading just before all of these hostilities kicked off. So the last book that I translated that I just put out um, is by his nephew J. H. Baving. And it's a it's a really great little book called Personality and Worldview, and that's a classic example of a book that was doing really well in the 1930s in in the Netherlands and very influential. And then World War II happened, and um, the publishing industry was decimated, and the book was just forgotten. I mean, it just fell off the map, and I'd, probably nobody had read it until I found it in in a, in a crate full of old Dutch books, um, you know, 60 years later, 70 years later, and then translated it. Um, so it's it's motivated by love, I guess, of uh, like a weird sense of very nerdish adventure, um, of just looking through old stacks of books and trying to get into them and explore this different world of the past, um, and then you know it takes a long time to translate a book. Um, I thought and, that as I was reading that um, that J H Bavink book, I thought, well, you spend a lot of time because it's a very it's not a you know it reads like a philosophy book there's some deep concepts in there yeah. that seems like that's it's it's a slow read in even in english yeah yeah so so actually i started translating things when i first moved back to edinburgh after three years in the netherlands so there i was just living in dutch all the time and you know it became completely intuitive as a language and i, I felt like i could just be myself in it all the time and really missed it when i moved back to edinburgh and all of a sudden was back in this very you know english uh, dominant environment so I wanted to do something that would just keep my Dutch from completely atrophying. So I decided that I was going to try and spend, even if it was just 15 minutes a day, 
translating a paragraph from a book. And then by the end of a year, maybe I could work through a book. So the first stuff that I started to translate was by Herman Bavinck, and it was um, his material on preaching. So I wanted to think through, okay, if you believe all this stuff in your in your study, or if you're reading all this work in your study, when you step into your pulpit, well, like, does it translate at all? And what did it look like for him? So I spent a couple of years, well, three years, slowly translating just 15 minutes a day, um, his material on preaching. And that turned into a book called Herman Bavinck on Preaching and Preachers. I guess I became aware going on with translation stuff that it's a really useful way to serve the church. Um, you know, so there are a lot of Dutch people who speak excellent English, but it's not their first language. And so stuff that's translated into English by a non-native speaker, um, you can usually tell that it's not actually by a native English speaker. It's kind of clunky. It's full of Dutchisms. Um, but the person obviously really understands the original texts to a native kind of level, but texts um, translated by non-natives, I find that they don't have quite the same like longevity amongst native readers, if, just because it still feels a bit foreign. Um, but there are actually very few people in the world, or very few theologians who are native English speakers, but who are very fluent Dutch speakers. So I, I really felt privileged to have had three years working over there and, and become a very fluent Dutch speaker and uh, and also, you know, knew the theology well. So I really want to make the most of that, I guess. And I see that as a kind of long-term vocation that I can, you know, I can understand the Dutch material really well, and I can actually render it in native English as a native English speaker. Um, but I guess over the years I became aware as well that, because I've been doing this for a decade now, um, that it takes quite a while to get a book uh, out. You know, the translation takes a while and then the production stuff takes another year at least. And, um, you know, over the course of my lifetime, you know, let's say I'm spared for, I don't know, however many more decades on this earth, um, you know, I can't translate everything that I ever read. So I have to be um, kind of discerning about deciding, okay, I've read, you know, these 10 Dutch books, which really needs to come out in English. So I, I've tried to be, I try to have some kind of a grand plan of which books will be really useful together. And I've worked on this with a couple of my former PhD students, um, Grace Utanto and Corey Brock as well. So together we took on a translation project around the idea of worldview. So I've already mentioned personality and worldview. I did that one on my own. But with Gray and Corey, we've also translated two of Herman Bavinck's books, um, which had never come out in English before. Uh, one is called Christian Worldview, and the other is called Christianity and Science. Yeah, you've got it there, and a very handsome orange cover with Crossway. So Christianity and Science just came out as well. And um, so you know, we'd all been reading lots of Bavinck together over years, and we really liked the way that he handles the idea of worldview. And that appealed to the three of us for quite different reasons, I think. It appealed to me because in the UK, we don't talk about worldview at all, and it's a really useful concept. Um, and we really need it actually in the UK to have some kind of worldview discourse to help us think, and especially for Christians, because it's quite a, an aggressively secular country. Uh, so if Christians don't have this very useful idea, then we, we really suffer for that. So it appealed to me just to get a text out there in the UK context that would be a useful resource. But I think it appealed to Corey and Gray. I mean, so Gray is Indonesian, but is based in the US and Corey is American, although he's now based in Scotland. <laughs> but um, I think the text appealed to them as people who'd worked and studied in the US because um, what Bavinck means by and does with worldview is very different to what most, you know, what 99% of American evangelicals mean by worldview. Um, and we all thought that Bavinck's take on this was much better, um, much more intellectually rigorous and practically useful. And 
um, you know, we we share a lot of the critiques that a lot of people have of the way that worldview does get used a lot in American evangelical contexts. But we don't want to get rid of the concept. We want to restore it a bit and, and remedy it. So, um, so we thought, you know, Bavink had these two books that were written um, as companion books. So Christian worldview is thinking through the theory of, well, what is worldview and how do you develop a worldview and what kind of questions do you have to ask to pursue a worldview? Um, so it's the theory, but the other book, Christianity and Science, is what does this look like? What does it look like in practice and with a specific topic in mind, which is actually um, the life of the mind? So it, it's his argument for a Christian university, um, but you can apply the same logic to Christian schools. Um, and you can also apply the same logic just to thinking as a Christian if you're someone like me who teaches at a secular university, but I'm. I'm when I tell my students, especially my undergrads, that I'm a Christian theologian. Um, it's a little bit like in Breaking Bad, if you know that series. Um, uh, the, uh, when it's when Walter White's life, uh, his, his life descends into crime, and um, he Jesse, who's already a criminal, tells him, "Well, you need a criminal lawyer," and he says, "I know a guy who does criminal law." And Jesse tells him, "No, I'm saying you need a criminal lawyer." <laughs> so when I tell my students that I'm a Christian theologian for undergrads, anyway, quite often, you know, they they think, "Oh, okay, he's someone who knows about Christianity." But it doesn't always click right away because, you know, usually they're like second or third generation, completely unchurched. Um, it wouldn't always occur to them to think that he's a Christian theologian. But the penny does drop eventually. But so for someone in my kind of context, who's very intentionally a Christian and a thinker in a secular um, intellectual context, um, it's a really useful book as well. So we, we read these and thought these just have to get out there. And then I read this J.H. Bavink book, Personality and Worldview. And again, thought this is like these three books have been, I mean, they, they function as a trio really. So we've been trying to work on those things. Um, and I've been, I also try and train my PhD students in translation, uh, how to read Dutch and how to translate it well, uh, because, you know, it's, this is too important for it just to rest on a single person's shoulders, um, you know, because, I mean, I won't be around forever. Um, and, um, you know, you, you need, you need an army, you know, a small army to take on this kind of thing to make a real change and it can't be dependent on any one of us. So so I've got former students who are translating stuff into Chinese, um, into various other languages. Um, so yeah, that's a, a very short uh, snippet into my life as a translator, I guess. I, I just do it out of love. I mean, they're, they're such great texts and it's actually huge fun just to get to become an author that you imagine for a while uh, because, you know, the more you translate one person, the more you get used to their style and their thoughts and like you really are trying to convey that person in English, um, and that, I just think becoming a custodian of a, of a great book um, and getting it out in another language is just such a huge privilege. I mean, it's uh, it's a beautiful thing, and I love it. I'm really grateful that I get to do this. Well, we are so grateful, James, for both for your skills and also for the providence of God who has set you on the journey that He has. Because I do think it's a great blessing to have. Uh, like I said, I just got done reading both Christian Worldview and then Personality and Worldview uh, in the last couple of months. And so it was just a great blessing to benefit from your labors of love. Is this uh, is this translation work? Is this something you, you know, are you doing a little bit every day or is it like you're going to take a, a month during the summer term and just sort of go all in on translation? Um, so the last... The last three things that I've translated, I actually, um, this is a kind of silver lining and the blessing of a pandemic. So I had a sabbatical in twenty. Uh, 20 
And I had all kinds of plans for a book I was going to write. And then all of a sudden there was this, you know, complete government lockdown. The library was closed and I just, I didn't have any books. And um, so, and, and, you know, you, you could only like legally, only leave your house once a day and all that kind of stuff. So I had to have something to do with my sabbatical. So I thought, okay, I can translate and I can put out some books that are, that'll be useful to other people out there. So um, that was when Gray and Corey and I worked on Christian Worldview. Um, but I also had a couple of other projects. So that was also when I translated Personality and Worldview. Um, and I also translated um, a lifelong set of letters between Hermann Bavink and one of his closest friends, a guy called Christian Snukerchronje, who was his polar opposite. They became friends as students when they were undergrad students together. And, um, you know, so Bavink was this very orthodox Christian. Snukerchronje was, I mean, his dad was a liberal pastor, but he himself, he didn't think he believed anything. And then he converted to Islam and... Um, he he led this very like weird and interesting life, um, and but he was a, he was a really close conversation partner for Bavink and their letters to each other. You know they begin at the age of like seventeen, talking about how bored they are in their classes and revising for exams and all that kind of stuff. But as their lives progress, they have really you know frank, honest discussions about belief and unbelief and Christianity and Islam and politics and um, all kinds of things. So they're. It's, it's a really fascinating um, window into that kind of exchange between two people who are very, very different as characters and the kind of shape of life that they have and the beliefs that they have. So um, so in that sabbatical, I also translated all of those letters and um, footnoted everything just for, you know, because it's very specific to context. Um, so that's the, so I did those three things in that sabbatical, but that was quite unusual to have, you know, six months when I was like literally stuck at home and without other books, just these things to work on those projects. Um, but going forward, um, I I probably do need to prioritize writing my own material <laughs> going forward. So for me, I guess translations are, are, are a side project and a really valuable one, I think. And and, and again, just I, I love doing it. So I, I just get this done where I've got some spare time. Um, I'm not sure when I'll have another six months just to translate, you know, three books in yeah, because I could probably on my own get one of these done in maybe two months if that was just what I was doing fairly intensively. Um, but um, yeah, I, I do have a grand plan for more books that I want to translate over the years. But if I'm spared into retirement age, then I would hope to be, you know, to have a lot of time then and I have some larger book projects that I really want to translate um, one day. But that, that could be a few decades away. Well, you are a, you're a grace to the broader church, brother. I'm, I'm grateful for you. Um, final question I want to ask you is this, if the average person in my church wanted to start reading Bavink or to sort of begin stepping into sort of his work, where's the best place for the average Christian to start? Hmm. So, I mean, Bavink himself thought that issue through, and this is also something that's a really good feature with him. Um, so his reform dogmatics, I think for the average person, that's probably not the text to read. So he wrote that very much as a high-end reference work for, uh, you know, if you have a, a seminary degree, if you're a pastor, he thought this is the kind of book that you need on your shelf. And it wasn't, he didn't imagine that you would sit and read, you know, volume one all the way through to volume four nonstop, you know, it's, it's there so that you can, you know, refer to it when you're, you know, if you're preaching and there's a particular doctrine that you, you really have to have thought through or get refresher on. Um, but for people in that position, you know, if you have, I give, you know, someone at church who's planning to go to seminary 
a, a book like Reform Dogmatics is a really worthwhile lifetime investment. Um, but then beyond that, so Herman Bavinck thought, so he really wanted the content of his dogmatics to be accessible to people, to a broader public. But he, so he, he produced two different versions of it that were targeted at different kinds of audience. So you, you mentioned Wonderful Works of God already. So that's the distilled one volume um, version of the content of his dogmatics. And that was aimed specifically at people who have a college level education. So not in theology per se, but, um, you know, I guess, I mean, you'll have seen this in reading the book. The chapters are all actually quite short, yeah. um, but the book itself is really thick. So it, it's, it's kind of misleading with how it looks from the outside because you assume it's going to be, you know, a really dense, heavy tome, but actually the chapters are not that long. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing that if you read through a chapter a day, then over a few months, um, you'll be really edified by it. And they're also wonderfully doxological. You know, each chapter really yeah. does what good theology is meant to do, which is drive you to worship. And th that, that book does so really well. So I think, um, you know, for if that's if that's your stage in life, maybe, or your kind of background, then the, uh, that's a book I'd really strongly recommend. But he also wrote another book called Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion. Not the catchiest title for teens, but it was actually written by Bavinck for, um, for you know, teens or for um, undergrad students, basically. So, um, and particularly, you know, if, like, if, you, if you're not... Um, I don't know, like, let's say you're not majoring in the humanities. So a, a longer book like One of Forks of God, you know, might just not be the kind of book that, that would land with you as a reader. So this is much shorter still. And it's, a, it's like a distillation of Wonderful Works of God. So that's that came out in English. That was translated by a couple of my former PhD students, um, Cam Clossing and Greg Parker. So that's probably been out for a year or so now. Um, I think, you know, if, if, you, if you read guidebook, it still it kind of makes you wonder like wow what did they like feed Dutch teenagers in in nineteen ten that this is actually a successful book for teens in that context, <laughs> um, but um, so there are lots of resources like that that are available. Um, I think those those two are great as general introductions to his thought. But there are also you know if if someone wants to read Bavink and they've got particular interest in for example a Christian education. This new book, Christianity and Science, is great, and you, you don't need a prior background in him to, to make sense of the book. Um, if someone's really interested in apologetics, he has a book called Philosophy of Revelation, which is great as an example of what it looked like for him to do apologetics. Um, yeah, he has lots and lots of shorter books, and quite a lot of them are, are now available in English. If you're a preacher, the book on preaching and preachers and Bavink. Um, and I, so I, I published a biography of Bavink in 2020 that's um, again, hopefully useful for anyone who's reading him for the first time, um, just because I, I tried to set in context um, his life and when he wrote each of his books. And, you know, I think then it's a kind of roadmap as well. So if you're going to dip into any of the books, you know, oh, this is why he wrote that and when and the kind of place that it has in, in his life and why he would put this out there. Well, James Elginton, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, be a guest for us today. I know you're a busy man and your uh, life is full of teaching and work and study. And so thanks for uh, joining us for uh, the podcast today. It's been a blessing and uh, I'm grateful to call you a friend and grateful for the work you're doing to resource the church and resource pastors like me. So thank you. Thank you, Bob. It's great to talk with you today. Yeah. As we always say, the goal of the Wednesday Conversation is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. This is primarily a podcast. 
we do for the people of our churches, but we love that there are many of you who listen in from all over the world. And so as you listen in, we pray that the things we're talking about here might be helpful to you as you minister in your own context. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.